0: we concluded last week that we are the product of intelligent design. Uh, The next question then that we have to answer is, okay, who is this intelligent designer? Is the designer God? And if so, is he the God of the Bible or some other God? How do we know? Can we know? Now the whole concept of God stirs up quite a few questions, responses, and emotions. Some positive, some apathetic, some negative. There is a growing divide, however, between those who do believe in God and those who do not. And and I know what I believe, but I I can't make that choice for you. I I can't believe on your behalf. You and you alone have to determine whether or not you believe. It's it's a matter of faith, and that's where it becomes a sticking point for a lot of people. H.L. Mencken said... Faith may be defined as an illogical belief in the occurrence of the improbable. An illogical belief in the occurrence of the improbable? I don't believe that. To to believe in God does not mean that you have to park your brain at the door and hang your reason on a hook while you look into the question and, and that you set aside all sense and sensibility. Now for the sake of time this morning, let's begin with the assumption that there is a God Who designed this universe and specifically life on this globe? Can we know who this God is? Can science prove his existence or prove to us who he is? Well, let me answer the second question first, and that is, no, science cannot prove to us that God exists or who he is. Strictly speaking, something must be repeatable to be scientifically verified, as in an experiment that can be done over and over and over again to get the same results. You cannot prove the existence of God by your five senses. And for some people, that's a real hang up. So some people then conclude okay, we can't scientifically prove it. I can't prove it by my five senses. Therefore, faith is some kind of dumb ascension to things that we cannot know and therefore becomes a crutch for people who lack intelligence. But science proof and your five senses are not the only evidentiary proof of something to believe in. I'm going to assume that most of you in this room believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States of America. If you don't believe that, we can talk about it later, but I think the bulk of us probably do. And yet you cannot prove that scientifically. You cannot prove that with your five senses. Not a soul in this room has ever met him. But the historical evidence the eyewitness testimony, the documents that have been written, even the archaeological evidence suggest beyond all shadow of a doubt that George Washington was our first president. You see, history, eyewitness testimony, and archaeological evidence is all evidence. It's not scientific, but it's still evidence. I find that faith can be both sensible and reasonable when you put it into something that makes sense. Professor, professor Paul Friskney said, you can't achieve faith by reason, but reason can support your faith. Faith must be reasonable. You know, faith can also be absurd. To believe that the world is flat, and there are some who do believe that, given all the evidence to the contrary, that, to me, is an absurd faith. When all the evidence points in this direction, and you say, well, I'm going to believe in this direction anyway, that, to me, is an absurd faith. The problem is that that's too many people throw everything into the absurd basket when it comes to faith. People say, to live by faith is absurd. That statement is absurd, because everybody lives by faith. Everybody lives by faith. When you walk out these doors and you get in your car, that's a step of faith. When you board an airplane to fly from point A to point B, that's a step of faith. When you lay down on an operating table, that's a step of faith. Even the most ardent atheist and the most devoted evolutionist has faith in an accidental beginning that there was some spark, that there was something that happened in this universe to to begin the process. There is no evidence for anything like that, and so it is a step of faith to believe that. All of us live by faith. My faith in God is based on what I believe to be historical evidence, eyewitness testimony, archaeological evidence, and personal experience. It's still faith, but it's based on something believable. It's not based on wistful longing or religious platitudes. It's based on the fact that the evidence points in that direction. And don't accept something just because I say it. Use your own brain, deepen your own thinking, study hard, look at the evidence, don't just follow the crowd, any dipstick can do that. (laughs) Besides, the crowd so oftentimes is wrong. So who is this God of the Word? What what does the Bible claim about God? Now I, I, I could read you literally dozens or scores of passages that would talk about that, but I've just picked a handful here just to give you a glimpse. Exodus 15 11 says, who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. It's a rhetorical question. There is no one like you, Lord. The psalmist writes in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. In other words, the psalmist says, I can't go anywhere that you're not there, God. Exodus chapter 20, where God gives the Ten Commandments, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And the first one is this, you shall have no other gods before me. I am it. I am the, I'm the one and only. I am who I am. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 and following. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And get verse 6. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, you could read tons more passages of Scripture like these, but this is enough to convince you that the Bible claims that God is one, and the one that we read about here is the true one. So is it true? Well, there are are a lot that certainly doubt that. In his book, Taking the Truth Next Door, David Faust describes a woman that he had several conversations with, and... um, She was one of those who had done a little bit of reading in a lot of different spiritual documents. And so she liked a little bit of what she found in the Bible. She liked some stuff in the New Age movement. She liked some Buddhist literature. She even had read some of the American Indian beliefs and liked that too. And she she doesn't have any clue as to what to call God. So she calls him the big fuzzy white thing because she says there's no baggage attached to that. I suspect that's true from that standpoint. But she doesn't know what to believe. She has problems with Christianity because it claims to be the door to God. And she can't figure out at all why Jesus Christ had to come. She, She asked the question, why isn't a relationship with the BFWT enough? And the BFWT is the big fuzzy white thing in case you hadn't picked up on the initials. It's an interesting question. Why isn't a relationship with God enough? Why all the rest of this stuff? How can we know what's enough? Who gets to say who God is or what God is like? Can't I just visualize God in my mind the way I want him to be? Can't I just take the parts that I like or the parts that I need of spiritual concepts and live by those? Can't I just fashion God in my image the way I need him to be, whether it's like that for anybody else? And the the answer to that is simply this, no, you can't. It's not right. It's illogical, it doesn't make sense, and it's not fair to God. Do you want people doing that to you? Just guessing who you are and when you show up like you are and saying, oh, that can't be you, you're not the person I wanted you to be. How how ridiculous and absurd is that? Swiss theologian Karl Barth says there are only two ways to attain knowledge of God. One is to begin with man and reason upward, The other is to begin with God and accept His revelation to us downward. Unfortunately, the vast majority have employed the reason upward approach rather than the revelation down approach to find their understanding of their concept of God. When we as human beings reason upward, we create God in our image. But I don't remember reading that one in the Bible. God created us in His image And when we create him in our image, if I were God, I'd I'd just be honked about that. Wouldn't you? Our problem is the fact that all of the religions of the world give us a different image of God and they can't all be right, can they? Ravi Zacharias explains it like this. He says, truth by definition excludes that which contradicts it. If there is a truth that you believe is right and something contradicts it, then one of the two have to be wrong. Therefore, logically speaking, he says, all religions could be wrong, but there is no way they can all be right because they contradict each other. Now there are some broad stroke areas and and principles where they agree. And let me share those with you this morning. In, In the religions of the world, humanity is taught that human beings must take the initiative to reach God, that God is distant. and and hard to reach, and it's through the rituals of worship that humanity is brought to God's attention. So the harder you worship, the more God will notice you. In the religions of the world, no sacrifice for sins is provided. Humanity is left to work through its own sin in some fashion or another. And in some religions, there's actually no concept of sin to begin with, and often the path to forgiveness then is filled with self-sacrifice and great pain. The more pain you endure for God, the more he is likely to forgive you. In the religions of the world, there is no such thing as saving grace. Humanity merits its salvation by deeds that gain the approval of the God being served. Every religion of the world ultimately offers a salvation that is earned by the disciple or follower. Salvation, therefore, is a reward or a wage or a compensation. It's not a gift. And in the religions of the world, there is no assurance of eternal peace. If it depends upon humanity's merit, one cannot know until he or she dies if he or she has done enough to make the God happy and accept you into whatever life there is afterwards. This, then, is a broad brush stroke description of the world's religions. But the list does not reflect my faith. That's not what I believe. And you say, okay, but don't all paths up the mountain lead to God who's at the top? I mean, we all may be going up different sides of the mountain, but don't we all eventually get to God at the top? What if I told you this morning that instead of us going up the mountain path to somehow reach God, that God had actually already come down the mountain to reach us? Wouldn't that be the God that you would want to follow? The God who came down the mountain to us, who didn't demand that we grovel our way up to him. I've told you this story before, but it it comes to my mind so often. Several years ago when Brad and I were in India, we were sitting in that Hindu uh, seminary or monastery and and, uh, listening to these young men who were training to be monks uh, uh, in the Hindu faith, and they were chanting and they were moaning as they took their path up the mountain to get the attention of their many gods. And we listened for quite a while as they did that. And then they turned to us and asked us what we believe. And I was so grateful to be able to tell them Jesus' parable of the prodigal son and how in my faith, the father comes down the path Running to meet the wayward child. What, what kind of story sounds best to you? That we struggle up the mountain to try and face a God who may or may not notice it? Or we see a God who comes running down the path to meet us? You see, that's one of God's snapshots of who He is. That's one of God's revelation. that parable of the prodigal son. And God gave us other snapshots through His revealed Word and through signs and wonders and through the prophets of old who recorded their messages. But that photo album alone was just not enough. And so God shows up in person. If you want to know who God is, then study the life and the person of Jesus Christ because that's God in the flesh. I like this quote from Elton Trueblood. This historic Christian doctrine of the divinity of Christ does not simply mean that Jesus is like God. It is far more radical than that. It means God is like Jesus. You want to know God? Then know Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus Christ, Christianity stands apart from all the religions of the world. Now, true, there are things that we have in common about treating people good and and being nice and those kinds of things. But in the heartbeat doctrines, It stands apart. Do you know how it differs? If somebody said to you this this afternoon, hey, how does Christianity differ from what I believe? Could Could you answer that? Because you need to be able to answer that. You need to know for your own self why you believe it's different. So here, these are the answers. In Christianity, we do not take the initiative to seek God. God has already taken the initiative to seek us. The parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son clearly point that out. Jesus said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. He's the seeker, not us. In Christianity, we do not make the sacrifice. God has already made it. Indeed, we are incapable of making this sacrifice. We have been disqualified by our sins. But God demonstrated His love, His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Christianity, we do not earn work or merit our salvation. It is not a reward or a wage or a compensation. It is a gift, a gift from God, an expression of grace. Ephesians chapter 2, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And in Christianity, we can know our eternal destiny because it does not depend upon us. Our good deeds are our good works, but upon the promise of the living God who said, if you walk by faith, if you accept my son, you have life everlasting. Now, now I want to know, is that the kind of God you want to follow? Because it certainly is the one I want to follow. Can you find one like that anywhere else but here? That's what sets Christianity apart. That and the fact that we have a risen Savior. You see, Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship with God. It's not a matter of trying. It's a matter of trusting. And from the very beginning of time, God has told his story of redemption over and over and over again so that we could not miss it. He wanted to make sure we all got it. Because this was his plan from day one. Now, you've all seen these pictures. You've all heard this before. But I want to, I want to put it together in a just brief review so that you can see how God pulls, us, pulls it all together. Okay? On their last night in Egypt, the Israelites were preparing for their escape. It, this was the night of the 10th plague, the night when death would come through Egypt and every firstborn male would die, except except for those houses that were prepared. And God gave instructions to Moses and Aaron, and they said to kill the sacrificial lamb and drain the blood into a basin, and and if we understand that word, it it may mean. It may mean that the basin was the guttering that ran along the bottom of the house near the door, uh, not necessarily a ceramic kind of basin. And so if that perhaps is what they did, they drained the blood of the lamb into the basin. He said, take a branch of hyssop and dip it in the blood and then mark the doorpost and and the, the header over the door. And when they did that, there is this incredible picture. And when you connect the blood dots you get, you know what? You get a picture of the cross, which would not have made a bit of sense to the Israelites or to the Egyptians, either one. They would not have seen a cross because the cross had not been invented yet as a form of crucifixion. But God knew, God knew what was coming down the road. And he wanted us to be able to put those pieces together. How interesting to me that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, they lifted up on a branch of hyssop, a sponge soaked with vinegar to his lips. All the pieces of the story come together. During their years in the wilderness, God instructed them how to build this tabernacle, this tent of worship. And whenever they would stop in a particular area, they would erect the tent of worship. Now the, the tabernacle is where the presence of God actually came and dwelt among the people. And they would set up camp, three tribes to the north, three tribes to the south, three tribes to the west, and three tribes to the east. And when students of the word decided on the sizes of the tribes, they they drew this picture because this is how it would have looked in the wilderness with the tabernacle in the very center and the tribes on either side. And if you stood on a mountaintop and you looked down, you saw what? A cross. Again, it wouldn't have made any sense to the Israelites, but God could see this picture and knew that we would see it too. When the protein laminin was, was discovered uh, not all that long ago, in one of the early papers on the subject described it in these words, globular and rod-like domains are arranged in an extended forearm cruciform shape that, are you ready for this, that is well-suited for mediating between distant sites on cells and other components of the extracellular matrix." laminin is a glue-like protein which anchors cells together or mediates the distance between these cells. You've seen the picture before, but look at that. It is the picture of a cross again. Wow. When God said in his word, life is in the blood, he wasn't just using some kind of a, a clever poetic picture. It really is true. The story of redemption is told over and over again in your blood. You cut your hand or your foot and immediately the enemy begins to invade your body, and the bacteria gets in, and the bloodstream sends its army of redemption to the site. It sends the white blood cells, the leukocytes, and, and what each of those Blood cells will do that. That white blood cell, that leukocyte, comes around the bacterium and envelops the bacterium and absorbs the toxin out of that bacterium into itself. And then it discards, then it goes to the next bacterium, and then it goes to the next bacterium, and it keeps absorbing and absorbing and absorbing all that until it absorbs so much toxin and poison that itself dies. It is a self-sacrificing cell for the sake of the body. Every time that happens in your body it is retelling the story of redemption in the far reaches of the universe at the very core of the whirlpool galaxy is this image captured by the hubble telescope i don't know if god planted a cross in the heavens like that but man is that a beautiful picture to think that god is telling his story far and wide to the ends of the universe so that we would know what his message has been now you take all of those pictures and put them together you ready for this The cross as seen on the doorways in Egypt reminds us that the blood of the lamb brings life in the midst of inescapable death and that he is the door to everlasting life. The cross, as seen in the temple in the wilderness, is instrumental in bringing us into the very presence of God. The cross, as seen in the laminin picture, bridges and mediates the gap between us and God. The cross, as seen in our blood system, reminds us of the horrendous price of redemption, that Jesus became sin, that he absorbed the toxin of sin right into his body and succumbed to it so that we would have life. The cross as seen in the far reaches of the universe reminds us that this is God's story for all times to the far reaches of forever. You see, God has revealed to us who he is and what he's up to. And it's that. You want to know God? Know Jesus Christ. Because that's how he revealed himself to us. He became one of us. And no other story in all of history, no other faith base and evidence is like that. During the Parliament of Religions at the Chicago Exposition uh, Exposition of 1893, Joseph Cook was representing Christianity. What happened, as I understand it, in the, in the big arena that they had there, on the platform behind the speaker was a semi-circle of chairs set up where, all, where representatives of all the major religions of the world were seated, and they all had the opportunity to step forward and talk a little bit about their religion and espouse its uh, great points. Joseph Cook, who represented the Christian faith, was the last one to speak, and as he got up, he didn't begin by talking about Christianity, he got up by talking about Shakespeare's Macbeth, the story of Macbeth and and how Lady Macbeth had conspired with her husband to kill the king so that her husband could ascend to the throne. But once the dastardly deed that they had both accomplished was over, the guilt was just overwhelming for Lady Macbeth. And the servants in the household in the play say that she would walk sleepwalk at night and she would rub her hands and what they could not see were the imaginary spots that supposedly Lady Macbeth could see. It was like she was trying to rub the blood, the guilt of the blood off the back of her hand. Oh, these spots, these cursed spots. And she finally exclaims in the play, what will my hands never be clean again? And Joseph Cook stood there and he rubbed his hands until the whole audience just was caught in this. And then he turned to this semicircle of religious leaders, and he says, Do you have anything that can take away those spots and that guilt? And there was silence. And he turned to the audience and said, Thank God I do. For the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That there is the difference. That's the difference. You want to know God? know Jesus. Do you? He's come to seek and to save the lost. He's come running down the path to embrace you. That's the kind of God I want to serve. That's the only God.